Well, thank you very much, Fred, and Redemption Church family, just or anybody tuning in, for allowing me to bring the message to you this morning. It's something that I do not take lightly, and I'm excited about this message. This is something that God has really been speaking uh, into my life directly about uh, this passage of Scripture. And so I would like to just dive right in. The passage that we are reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. We'll pray and then we'll dive into the message. The Bible says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we, we love you. We are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this online platform that we have in this season of chaos and uncertainty and, and seclusion in, in a lot of cases, Lord. We're thankful that we can at least come together online virtually to, to gather around your word and to hear what you have for us this morning. And so as we take a look at this uh, passage of scripture, Lord, and we, we look to see what um, Peter was writing to the people at the time, but how we can maybe apply it to ourselves today, Lord, I just, I really pray that anybody this morning specifically that may be suffering or, or struggling in some way or feeling this, feeling the fire, so to speak, Lord God, I just ask that you would just empower them and speak very clearly into their hearts and encourage them this morning. But above all, Lord, we want you to be glorified, honored, and praised this morning by what we say and do. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon title this morning is Strangers Trust God Through Suffering. Strangers Trust God Through Suffering. So we arrive at another passage about suffering. I, this letter, I, the, the people that Peter was writing to must have been suffering a great deal because there's definitely been bits and pieces of the letter that have alluded to the suffering of this body of believers. And after really getting the attention of his readers with the last section about the alertness and the sobriety of mind, which Greg uh, did a great job, a fantastic job of kind of breaking that passage down, we arrive here. And in a way, these are kind of Peter's final remarks about suffering as we're kind of approaching the end of this letter. He'll have a few more instructions here and there, but as far as suffering is concerned, this is like his, his, his final words on the matter. And so what I want you to see today is that this is not just about suffering, but what suffering really shows us is where and with whom our trust ultimately lies. So point number one, as we dive in this morning, strangers ought not be surprised when they suffer, but rejoice. Let's take a look at verses 12 and 13 again. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes you 
uh, comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. In verse 12, the Greek word for fiery ordeal, what is he referring to there? Is it literal fire? Well, the word he uses is pyrosis, which means fire or to burn. But why use this choice of words? Well, it's extremely evident that throughout this letter, we've been enlightened that the people whom Peter was writing to have walked through the fire of persecution for their faith a lot. And ironically, and I was kind of talking with, uh, Greg mentioned this I, I, when I got together with, with him and, and Fred and we're talking about my sermon uh, a couple days ago, uh, Greg kind of mentioned, ironically, they were, they were really about to be put through the fire when the persecution from Nero would start. And so if you don't know the context of that, you can look it up, but there was literally Christians being burned like an entire city burned by one ruler. So it's kind of this metaphorical versus literal fire. That's not what he's writing here. That's just kind of how I read into the text. It's just kind of ironic, but what Peter is doing is he's advising them to not regard those fiery trials as something surprising. Christians can and should expect such things, but why? Because it's part of something bigger. And we'll, we'll kind of dissect that a little bit later. Now, the second half of that verse, there's a phrase to test you. So in the Greek, that word is parasmos. It's very similar to pyrosis. You can kind of hear the, the similarity in these, but these tests are what give people who claim to believe and trust in God a chance to prove their faith. So you hear these words prove and test. Literally, it's the same idea as poking or piercing something with, with a sharp object. It's a test which reveals what you're truly made of. Who, you're truly, who you truly are. These tests through fire are a part of a refining process. And so if you don't know anything about refining work, I really didn't, so I did some digging. And the dross that forms on a metal is, it's just a mass of solid impurities. On different types of metals, there's different things that can just kind of grow uh, on the metals and it can form on all different types of metals, from my understanding, for different reasons, over different spans of time and in different conditions. And it's pretty common process when working with metal that the surest way to remove any and all dross, to remove any and all impurities from a metal is to refine it through fire. So you need that heat. You see, it's the fire that creates separation. And when in the fire, what is pure can withstand the metal. What is impure, the dross cannot. So when our trust is in anything but God, when tested in the fire, it will not survive. Only what is pure will. Until the things you truly live for are tested then, you really don't know where your allegiance lies. You may say, I trust in God, but when, when put to the test, when put through the fire, you find that the things you actually did trust in are consumed. They're burned up. So think about it in terms of, let's, let's give an example, because you might be having a hard time uh, thinking of a specific, let's think about your job, okay? Let's say if you trust and obey God in a difficult work environment, you might lose your job. Standing for Christ, standing for what's right, you're at risk of losing your job. 
But if you lose your job that you thought was solid, okay, and it, you just lose it for some reason, the company goes under or they have to make cuts for no reason, it's, it's not anybody's fault. If, if that happens, you need to trust that God knows what's best for you. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So you trust God and lose your job or you lose your job and you have to decide whether or not you trust God. You're, you're kind of torn, okay? You need to ask yourself, what is the cost of what I put my trust in? Your decision, whatever you put your trust in, may cost you something very near and dear to you. This could be a job, this could be a relationship, money, your house, family, stability, comfort, whatever it might be, but the only way to grow and not be consumed by the fire is to trust and obey God every single time. Not only that, but Peter doesn't just say do that, but he also says to rejoice. And what are we, why are we rejoicing? That he is making you into something that looks more and more like him. A good silversmith knows that when they can see their own face, in the metal that they are refining, when they can see their own reflection, the refining process is complete. So we ought not be surprised then when God allows that which will test us and refine any impurities, which is anything uh, else other than God we place our trust in the hope of seeing his reflection in us after the fact. That should be what causes us to rejoice. So what are we rejoicing in? Well, let's read verse 13 again. It says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. So that's what should cause us to rejoice, that, that, that we're, we're, being share, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But not only that, we back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says this, you rejoice in this, what? So here's the same word, being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. We'll address that later. But he says this, even though that now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, here it is, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May result in praise, glory, and honor. May result in praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're not rejoicing in the degree of suffering in some masochistic way, like the more suffering I get, the more I should rejoice because I love suffering. No, it's, it's in the suffering itself, the suffering that Jesus himself knows all about. As you share in the sufferings of Christ, that's, that's selfless in a way. This is incredibly revealing. How a believer responds to suffering is a clear indi indication of whether they truly belong to and trust God because they understand all of this. That's why Peter was informing these people uh, in this letter. So we understand then that strangers ought not be surprised when they suffer, but rejoice. But point number two this morning is that strangers suffer for the right reasons and are blessed for it. Verse 14 through 16, let's look at that again. It says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. So it's here that we kind of get a, a clear indication of the type of suffering that people whom Peter was writing to were facing being ridiculed for the name of Christ. And I, 
I'm not going to lie. I'm the kind of person that kind of like weighs different degrees of suffering. And that's not right. I'm not saying to do that. But I thought about this and I'm like, okay, being ridiculed for the name of Christ. Is that really that bad? It's happened to me before. It may have happened to you before. Like just people making fun of you or mocking you for being like a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. or Oh, you're one of those holy rollers. Those are probably words no one uses anymore. But this idea of just being ridiculed for the name of Christ, is it really that bad? Well, there's that old saying that a lot of people kind of throw around whenever they talk about, you know, people just hurling insults and words at you. It's sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that could not be further from the truth. I don't know about you, but words hurt. Words wound us deeper than any physical ailment ever could. Someone listening to this, I'm sure you can think about that weight that you're carrying around because of what someone said to you last week, five years ago, some of you 10, 20, 30 years ago. I can think of some of the insults that I've, I've experienced over uh, the past years, of, especially when I became a Christian, and not that I still let them bog me down. I've given them to God, but I remember the initial like hurt of someone, especially that I thought was my friend or a family member that loved me, and yet they ridiculed me for the name of Christ, especially. That hurts. Honestly, it would have been better if they would have just punched me in the face and walk away, because at least a black eye can heal quickly. But in, it, with words, they just stick in your mind and you, you replay what they said over and over again. And words are, are, have the weight to make you maybe rethink your belief in God or whatever. All I'm saying is that words hurt. And Peter then makes a bold statement right after saying, if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, he's saying that they are blessed by this. Is that as ridiculous as it sounds? Well, I wonder, I wonder where he got that idea from. Peter hung out with a guy for about three years of his life. Uh, you may have heard of him. His name is Jesus. And in Luke chapter 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says these words, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the son of man. Not only that, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. You're blessed when you are ridiculed for the name of Christ. Now, I kind of want to, I want to move on, but I don't want to skip over this phrase. He says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, what about this spirit of glory? What is that in reference to? Well, that's referring to the Holy Spirit. You can see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, where this same spirit is referenced earlier in this letter. It says this in, in verse 10 uh, of, of chapter 1 in the same letter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time and what circumstances the spirit of Christ capital S within them was indicating when he testified in advance of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. So if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, 
the spirit of glory, the Holy Spirit himself rests on you. But why is that significant? Well, two things. The general point seems to be that those who suffer for, for the name of Christ are in some sense experiencing the glory to come, literally the spirit resting on you at all times, the glory to come. What an amazing thing that is, but I don't want you to miss too, with that in mind, what, what are some of the, the roles of the Holy Spirit? What do we know about the Holy Spirit? Well, in John chapter 16, verses seven and eight, Jesus speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit when Jesus would have to leave. And he's almost suggesting to his disciples, not he's suggesting, he's telling them, it's better that I leave so that the Holy Spirit may come. And this is what he says in uh, verse seven of John chapter 16. He says, it is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Verse eight, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts. So when you are ridiculed or made fun of or persecuted or hated or beaten, whatever, for the name of Christ, when you are willing to endure that, even rejoice in it, the Holy Spirit can and will convict those who witness these events. God has a plan and a purpose for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So imagine, this is something that blew my mind. God might use you, God might use me through ridicule and hatred from another person in order to convict and save someone else. That blew my mind. The fact that when I'm griping or complaining or, or just upset because that person at work is always on my case or that family member, every time it's Thanksgiving, Christmas rolls around, he's always on my case about my belief in Christ. And if I'm willing to endure that, the Bible says that the, the spirit of glory and of God rests on me because of that. And who knows who the Holy Spirit is convicting in that moment. Maybe there's other unsafe family members or friends that need to experience that conviction. That is awesome stuff. But verse 15 and 16, uh, I want to kind of move on from that. So we, we get to this idea of Peter kind of contrasting examples on why we suffer. So this point, again, is that strangers suffer for the right reason and are blessed for it. We kind of addressed the second half of that point, but what are the right reasons? Well, not all suffering is a direct result of Christian behavior. So Peter warns against these things. Certain types of living that might result in suffering for the wrong reasons is things like murder, stealing, criminal behavior, gossiping. He's basically saying, he doesn't elaborate on this at all, but if you're suffering for those reasons, well, that's, you're not blessed because you suffer point blank. There's you're, you're, you, you're blessed when you suffer for the sake of Christ. We can actually see a similar contrast in Ephesians when Paul talks about living as light versus darkness. So here's kind of a different idea of, of what it means to live, uh, to su suffer for the right reasons. Like he, he lists some things that are, that are uh, living as light, contrasting that of living as darkness. So Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Not just light for light's sake, light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by light 
is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. Suffer for the right reasons. After I read this, I wrote down probably the lamest thing I've ever written down in a sermon before. Instead of, you could say, instead of suffering for the right reasons, suffer for the light reasons. Suffer for being light in this world, not for, being, not for living in darkness. But the last thing I want to mention under this point is in verse 16, which is, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Declaring shame is a direct indicator that one's actions are indeed shameful. So Christians who act shamefully by denying Christ, especially before those who don't believe, and especially in the midst of suffering and persecution, are not persevering in the faith. What will be the result of such actions? Jesus lays this very, very plainly. This is a hard passage for me to swallow. I don't, we don't like these verses in the Bible because this is something that exposes us uh, for the moments in life where we may internally or externally be shameful of our faith. Mark 8, 36 to 38, Jesus says this, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? What's worth your life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. If we're ashamed of Christ, he'll be ashamed of us. I think that's a pretty fair, I think that's a fair rule. If we want to call it a rule, that it's fair. Why, why should Jesus still accept us when we've been ashamed of him our entire life, or at least in moments, in the pivotal moments of our life, we shame him, we hide our faith. We say, no, nah, I don't actually believe in that stuff to get people off of our back. And yet we still turn to Jesus and say, accept me, Lord. It's not unreasonable. Compare that though to glorifying God in these same situations. Uh, I was reminded of, and I remember watching a documentary about this a while back, uh, the Columbine shootings. There was a girl, she's very famous now, uh, Cassie Burnell. Uh, uh, she, she wasn't actually even, this is something my wife uh, made me aware of because she read a book on her. She wasn't actually the strongest Christian. She was actually newly involved in the church and uh, kind of like a baby Christian, if you want to put it that way. She was, she was seeking uh, but she had her belief in Christ and, and she was still just kind of searching for her place in the church. And she, according to witnesses during the Columbine shootings, would not renounce her faith in God with a gun pointed to her head and she was immediately executed. Like, I, can you imagine being in a situation like that? I mean, she was what we consider a new believer, a new Christian, but her trust, it wasn't necessarily the belief that mattered. It was the trust that she had in Christ. I'm not saying belief in Christ doesn't matter, but the trust and trusting herself fully to him, that alone, that's what made all the difference in that moment. Because I can walk around and say, I believe in God, but when it comes down to it and a gun is pointed to my head, is my belief really what's going to make me decide to renounce Christ or to proudly wear the name of Christ? No, it's, do I actually trust that God's got me in this, whether I live or die? And Cassie was willing to be martyred for her faith as a baby Christian. Those who are not ashamed and trust God, understand that even though I suffer, this is for a greater purpose. It reveals where your identity, faith, and trust really 
abides. So point number three this morning, we first saw that strangers ought not be surprised when they suffer, but rejoice that strangers suffer for the right reasons and are blessed for it. And point number three, strangers understand God's judgment, verse 17 and 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 17, let's clarify who's a part of God's household first and foremost. Is this just anybody that goes to church? Is this anybody that's a member of a church? No, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he clearly indicates who is a part of God's household in this exact same letter. He says this, verse 4 of chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So it's believers. It's the chosen people of God. It's, it's the universal church. It's people who are, who are um, living stones, a spiritual house being built to be a holy priesthood. So we as strangers, as this household understand that it is much better than to be judged now in this life than later. We know even from last week's sermon that the end of all things is near. He kind of got your attention with that. But what I want to point out is that there's a clear reference in verse 17 and 18 to end time judgment, what's called eschatological, which is a long way of saying end times, judgment. Peter uses a translation, by the way, if you look up uh, verse 18, the translation of that is actually, it was made aware to me from Fred, our, our wonderful head pastor, uh, from the Septuagint, okay? And so that is a different translation from the original Hebrew. So if you look up in your Bible, Proverbs eleven thirty one, it's going to read differently than what verse uh, 18 reads. That's just because it's Greek versus Hebrew. But what I want to point out to you is that, so... In the original Hebrew, Proverbs 11.31 says this, if the righteous will be repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinful? The end times judgment, as we understand from this passage, has already begun, first and foremost. The difficulty that Peter refers to in his translation from the book of Proverbs is the suffering believers have to endure in order to be saved. I don't want to get confusing here, like we have to suffer in order to be saved. I thought it was just faith in God. We'll get there, okay? Bear with me in this. But get this, God saves his people by refining and purifying them through suffering. It is implied here then that salvation itself is eschatological. It, it, it comes in the end time. It's, it's a gift that believers will receive after enduring suffering. Uh, Peter actually references this same letter, uh, chapter one, verse five, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We're not there yet. Where? To the fullness of our salvation, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more ridiculement. We're not there yet. Endure. But let's look at it from the other angle now. If the believers are saved through this refining process of suffering, then what is the judgment of the ungodly and the sinner? I'm afraid to even know what will become of them. If we in Christ have to be refined and endure suffering in this life and, and judgment in this life, 
what about the unbelievers? I mean, what we know about those without God is an eternity spent in complete and total separation from him, a place called hell. So looking at these two verses in context of everything else we understand about suffering, it's almost as if God, in a way, is sifting out those who claim to believe and trust in him. But once they are put through the fiery ordeals, once they come through the fire, everything they actually place their trust in will be burned up in the fire because their trust was never actually in God to begin with. But I don't want you to see this as a, a test as if like there's a pass and fail, because if your trust is in God, if you really believe in Jesus Christ as, as God's son who died and rose again uh, for your sins, God will still use these as a test to retain uh, those of us who are weak in our faith and make us stronger for the real testing that will come uh, out there in the real world, so to speak. And so embrace it. Again, rejoice in that. So if your trust is in God and God alone, you are refined through the fire. You are not burned up in it. One can speculate that Peter just, he wrote this to motivate or encourage the people who were suffering during this time to endure in that suffering as we witnessed a similar argument a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. Uh, Fred preached on this. This was towards the end of his sermon. He says, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior. And he goes on to list them. They are surprised, ironically, the ones that are doing wrong are surprised that you don't join in with them. And yet we're called to not be surprised when they ridicule us for not joining in with them. It's kind of interesting, but they're surprised that you join, don't join in with them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There it is judgment for this reason. The gospel was also preached to those who are now dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh According to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Remember, it's worth it. Heaven is worth it. Eternity with God is worth it. Suffering may be difficult now, but by participating and enduring the pain of following Christ in this life, believers will never face the condemnation of those who do not believe. So strangers understand God's judgment, both now and at the end. So strangers ought not be surprised when they suffer, but rejoice. Strangers suffer for the right reasons and are blessed for it. Strangers understand God's judgment. Point number four and the last point this morning is that strangers entrust themselves then to the creator through suffering. So a couple of things about this verse before we close. First, According to God's will, this is what it says in verse 19. It says, so then let those who suffer according to God's will and trust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. This does not mean that suffering in and of itself is God's will. I don't want you to miss that, but rather that obedience to him can result in innocent suffering as a consequence of our faith and trust in him. And that is part of a much bigger and divine plan that only the sovereign, sovereign God, sorry if I just bumped the mic, only a sovereign God would understand. That's a sermon, a sermon series in and of itself. I don't have time to go into that, okay? That's a study on Romans, I feel like, okay? That's, that's a long study, but understand that it's, it's, it's part of a much bigger and divine plan. But what I love about this verse is the word that Peter uses to describe God. He refers to him as the faithful 
creator. What does creator imply? It implies God's sovereignty. It, it implies that God created all of this. And if he created all this, he's in control of all of this. And in God's supreme power and authority, that's literally what sovereignty means. We cannot miss then his faithfulness to us. It's in that we place our trust in a creator God who is sovereign and faithful over all things, good and hard. Our ultimate trust in God is displayed when we continue to do good, even when it might result in suffering. Paul John Actemeyer put it this way. He's just a Bible scholar. And I actually read one of his notes uh, regarding this passage in my study. And he said it this way. He said, quote, in a culture where Christian virtues were the cause of persecution, doing what God wants is precisely to entrust oneself to him, even though the result of such trust will be suffering. What better example do we have of this than Jesus Christ himself? As a matter of fact, once again, earlier in this letter, Peter alludes to this. First Peter chapter two, verses 21 through 23, he says this, for you were called to this, what? Called to what? Enduring suffering. In this particular passage, he's referring to even as a slave who does good and still suffers under his master, okay? So you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. I wish that was what could be said of me. No, but when Jesus suffered, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We also have the example recorded in uh, the gospels when Jesus is in the garden, the night he's going to be betrayed and he's praying, you can, you know, the, 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 you know, the picture where he's, he's literally praying so hard that he's, there's, there's uh, beads of, of blood literally sweating from his brow because he was in such agony over what was about to happen to him. And he's asking God, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? Can I avoid the suffering that will come? But what does he do? He says, not my will, but your will be done. That is total submission. That is, that is entrusting himself to the father and his will. So I said at the beginning of the sermon, what suffering really shows us is where and with whom our trust ultimately lies. Is this passage just about suffering? Initially, I thought yes. And I, I still believe that. I think that's partially true. It literally says that in the, if you have the CSB Bible, it says that in the bold heading above this passage, Christian suffering. So it's definitely about suffering. But the more I studied and the more I prayed on what I was going to actually present to you this morning, what God was revealing to me is that this passage is really about trust and where that trust ultimately lies. And then that it will, will be a direct indicator on how we handle suffering. I was listening to a Tim, Ke this is how I'm going to close. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon uh, called the grace of law. And he, it was the beginning sermon of the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to go to the, all the ins and outs. He paints the picture of where Deuteronomy begins with the Israelite people in the land of the Amorites. And they send the two spies in, even though God already said that he went ahead of them. All of that to say what Keller does is he focuses in on the condition of the human heart and how it's kind of this, uh, this theme throughout the book that's revealed. And it's, it's something you'll see 
um, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's something that, that hopefully would be revealed to you. Um, and it isn't our inability or desire to believe in God, in a creator, in a higher power, so to speak. And honestly, that struck me as odd because usually it's about whether you're a believer or you don't believe, okay? But no, the real issue at hand is not the belief in a God, but what he focuses on is the fact that we, it's not the belief in God, it's the fact that we don't trust him farther than we can throw him. That's how he puts it. And I started to think about that and he does a really good job of explaining that and kind of giving different examples throughout scripture. But I really thought about it even back to the beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve, it wasn't their belief in God that was the issue. They literally walked with him and communed with him. That, it was just them, okay? So it wasn't the belief that God was actually there. It was, what was, what was the result of the fall? What, what happened is their trust. Did God really say? That's what the serpent says to them. And they start to think, well, did God was, they start questioning their trust in God. Well, God did say this, but did he really say that? Do I really trust God then? Does God really love me? Does God really want what's best for me? And it led to the fall of man. And so all of that to say, why does that matter? I'm going to try to tie that into this, this sermon right here as, as I close. It's not about our belief in God that will help us endure suffering. It's trust that God knows what he's doing. So when we don't trust that God is in control, we either abandon him altogether or what do we do? We look inward and we start to trust ourselves to be able to handle it. I got this. I don't need God anymore. If God is just going to continue to let me suffer, well, maybe I'll just take over and, and life will get better from there. When our trust is in anything but God, when tested in the fire, it will not survive. Only what's pure will. We are called to be strangers on the earth and strangers trust God through suffering. That's strange. That's a strange way of looking at this world, that you trust your creator, your sovereign God that allows you to go through fiery ordeals and not even that, you're not surprised by it and then you rejoice in them. And, and he says that you're blessed because of it. You trust that God, that's strange. So my question to you this morning is, is, where are you this morning? Is the belief even there yet? If that's the part you're struggling with, well, salvation in Christ is available to all who will receive him. And if you want to know more about that, you can reach out to any member of our church. If you're tuning in and you're questioning even your belief in God, uh, point blank, talk to someone about that. Salvation is available to you today. But if you do believe, if you do claim a belief in God in some way, shape, or form, but there are areas of your life that you are struggling to fully trust him in, especially areas of suffering and hardship, today is the day to repent and to truly give that over to God. Stop looking, stop abandoning God through it or stop looking inward to try to handle it yourself and just give it to God. Fully entrust yourself to him. If we fully entrust ourselves to God in all things, if that's our starting point, then we will understand God's judgment. We will suffer for the right reasons. We will not be surprised when we are tested, but we'll rejoice in it. We will really be strangers on the earth. So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. When our trust is in anything but God, when tested in the fire, it will not survive. Only what is pure will.
Let's pray. God, we love you. And I pray that through my imperfect nature and as I fumbled over my words, Lord, that your Holy Spirit was able to communicate through me to someone that needed to hear this this morning. Father, your words have resonated in my heart and it's really made me reflect on the suffering that I've endured, whether great or small. And God, I'm sorry and I repent of the times that I've tried to handle it myself. And I've turned my back on you when you were just faithful and just wanting to see me through that in order to see yourself better in me. And I'm praying that if there's someone this morning that is struggling with the same thing, God, that you would just reach into their life and reveal this truth to them. God, help us to be strangers on the earth that understand what it means to truly suffer, but not just to truly suffer, but to trust you through it. And I pray that if anybody is going through something right now that is might be one of the most difficult times in their life or it's just a, a dip in the season of their life where they're just kind of uh, uh, feeling down about themselves or about a situation, especially in the, the time that we're living in right now, of seclusion and uncertainty. God, I'm just praying that your Holy Spirit would really just reveal himself to you or to them and uh, that they would, they would entrust themselves fully to you. Help us as the church to be strangers that trust our faithful creator. Lord, we love you. We give you glory, honor, and praise this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, thank you so much for giving me the time and the platform to be able to give you God's message. Uh, Let's continue in our time of worship this morning.